welcome to the Canine Conservationists podcast, where we're positively obsessed with conservation detection dogs. Join us every week to discuss detection training, welfare, conservation biology, and everything in between. I'm Kayla Fratt, a co-founder of Canine Conservationists, where we train dogs to detect data for land managers, researchers, agencies, and NGOs. Today, I have the absolute pleasure of talking to Elisa Healy from Dog Forward Training about wildlife chasing, particularly with dogs where um, that is likely to be a potential problem for us. So um, welcome to the podcast, Elisa. Why don't you start off with telling us a little bit about yourself, your history, the dogs you share your life with, all of that good stuff. Great. Thanks for having me on. I live in the Chicago suburbs with my two dogs. I have an eight-year-old Rhodesian Ridgeback named Ruby, and then I have a two-year-old Whippet named Laszlo. And we really enjoy off-leash hiking and exploring in nature. And I also train and compete in agility with my dogs. And as far as my business, my specialty is puppies and helping Mm -hmm. people raise really awesome puppies for an active life together. And so I offer in-home services for people that live in the Chicago suburbs. And then I also am lucky enough to work with clients all over the world virtually. Excellent. Yeah. Thank you for that introduction. And I am a, a little envious that you've got the the niche of puppies. Uh, <laughs> that sounds like as far as the dog, be, the dog behavior, dog training world, that's a nice place to be. Um, so I'm really excited to get into this interview and, um, you know, talk about how you succeed with some of this off-leash work with dogs that are not considered naturally um, predisposed towards that, uh, to put it uh, diplomatically. Um and you know how we can use that to to learn how we can learn from that and use that to apply with our conservation dogs. But first, we've got to get into our science highlights. So today we're reading a paper that may sound familiar for anyone who listened to the episode way back when with um, Esther Matthews. And this paper is called "Training Methodology for Canine Scent Detection of a Critically Endangered Lagomorph: A Conservation Case Study." This was published in the Journal of Vertebrate Biology in. 2021. Um, And the paper describes the training methodology used to investigate the ability of a scent detection dog to locate live riverine rabbits in their natural habitat and how to determine how species specific the dog was towards a target scent in a controlled environment. The dog was trained using operant conditioning and a non-visual methodology with only limited scent from roadkill specimens available. The dog reached a 98% specificity rate towards the the target scent, indicating that the dog was able to distinguish between the scent of riverine rabbits from the scent of other lagomorph species. The dog has already been able to locate 10 of these elusive individual rabbits in the wild, and the training method proved successful in the detection of critically endangered species where scent for training was only available from deceased specimens. So... This paper was really exciting and interesting to me because it shows that in the conservation world, sometimes we don't have access to the samples that we really want. (laughs) Um, It would be ideal to have this dog actually trained to find um, these live rabbits using live rabbits, but because of how endangered this species was, they had to use roadkill, um, and the dog was successfully able to generalize. And what relates to our conversation with Elisa here today is that this dog was actually expected to go and find these riverine rabbits in the wild, therefore kind of approaching the riverine rabbits and alerting to them without um, chasing them. So as part of this process, um, in our conversation with Esther, which um, we'll link that podcast in the show notes, she did mention that a lot of times the rabbits are flushing, but her dog, Jesse, was not chasing them. So that, you know, they still were disturbing the wildlife to some degree. It's not that the rabbits were never coming into contact with the dog and not having any sort of reaction, but um, they worked very intensively to ensure that Jesse was not going to chase them. So that is, um, you know, one of the more extreme examples of this wildlife interactions that we can talk about in the conservation dog world and the level to which sometimes we're asking our dogs to come into close contact with endangered animals, but not chase them. All right, so Elisa, let's start off with talking a little bit about... um, kind of like let's get some background here about why is it that working with some dogs around wildlife and animal interactions may be easier than with others and what have you seen specifically with your own dogs in that realm yeah so 
I mean, one of the great things about dogs is that there are so many types of them, so many different mm-hmm. varieties, so many different breeds, right? Mm-hmm. And when we think about how breeds were created, um, or I guess more more modern in modern times, we often think of dogs like by their appearance, you know, how they look. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes, like even some of my clients will choose dogs based on the appearance. But when we think about how these reads were historically created, it was really that the form follows the function and that these different breeds were created for different functions. And some of those functions involved, you know, finding, chasing, <laughs> grabbing, killing <laughs> wildlife. And so um, for some breeds, kind of that the full predatory sequence is still intact. So for the types of dogs that I have, a Rhodesian Ridgeback and a Whippet, they, you know, will <laughs> chase, catch, <laughs> grab, kill, um, wildlife. My personal Mm -hmm. dogs have not because I do closely manage them and we work on lots of training. Um, but I know that there, these are common breeds that, you know, people own and they, they do actually successfully (laughs) kill wildlife. And so, you know, when we think of other breeds kind of outside the sight hound group, which my two breeds fall into, um, you know, something like a herding dog, well, they are selected for a very different function than a sight hound, right? Mm-hmm. Where their function is not to engage in grabbing and killing the animal to some degree, right? Chasing, seeking it out, chasing um, and controlling the movement of animals, but not so much the grab and the kill or the consume part of that predatory sequence. And so the functions for which breeds were created can either complicate the goals when it comes to something like wildlife conservation Mm -hmm. detection dogs, or it can kind of work with the goals right? When we think of just those, mm-hmm. those instincts. And I think for a lot of breeds too, just varying levels of independence versus like handler mm-hmm. focus, mm-hmm. we might call handler focus, kind of come along with those historic functions that we selected for. So something like a Rhodesian Ridgeback or, you know, an Ibizan Hound, is bred to pretty much just go do its thing, right? Where the person hangs Mm -hmm. back and the person doesn't need to be running alongside the dog or giving them any information. Mm -hmm. Dog just goes and does its thing. Whereas when we think of something like a Border Collie, they are receiving instruction from a human to do their historic job, you know, on a farm or a ranch or wherever they might be. Um, which isn't to say that a border collie needs instruction to go engage in hurting behavior. <laughs> yeah, for better or for worse, absolutely. But, but, but that's part of their are, genetic package is to yeah. be to be much more cooperative with their person. Right. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up as part of it too, because it's kind of it's it's twofold and probably more than twofold. But the, the, I can think of two things right now. It's that predatory sequence and kind of where the dog falls as far as which factors in that predatory sequence are strengthened or hypertrophied and which are suppressed. And then it's also thinking about okay, and how cooperative is this dog likely to be with people and you know we've been talking a lot about breed but you know before the interview uh started before that we hit record we were also talking about how this obviously varies quite a bit within breed as well so you know are there different lines of dogs or you know different um even kennels or breeders that focus on different things that may make this uh, goal easier or harder for us? Definitely. Yeah. I mean, there's so much variety within a breed, even within a line or even within a litter. Um, Mm -hmm. 
I know you, your younger dog, Niffler, you know, came from a really great breeder. And mm-hmm. I'm curious just, you know, if you notice any variety even within that litter, because Niffler is so well suited to the work that you're doing, but that doesn't necessarily mean that all of his litter mates, I mean, they very well could all be well suited yeah. to that. But, you know, there's just tons of variety even with a litter, within a litter, um, which can, you know, make it hard if maybe your heart is set on a certain breed that may be considered unconventional or not quite the obvious choice for a particular mm-hmm. task. Um, and so it can be challenging to kind of seek out a breeder or a kennel or a line of dogs or the right pairing, you know, of two dogs yeah. for a specific breeding to try to find a, a dog that, you know, has that maybe higher level of handler focus or just maybe more drive, you know, however we want to define mm-hmm. that or, you know, they're very toy motivated. We want a really toy motivated dog for this work, or we want a highly food motivated dog for this work. We want a dog that's going to be naturally responsive to me and is going to care about me, you know, and is not just going to wander off and forget that I exist. <laughs> um, and so I do think it's important to remember that, there is variety within a breed and to not assume, you know, oh, I'm getting a border collie or I'm getting a Malinois. Um, it's going to be perfect and just what I need for this line of work. <laughs> yeah. There can be so many differences. Um, and so just for an example with my Whippet, um, he's not a conservation dog, but we do hike off leash and I also do agility with him. And, um, if you've been to any agility trials or maybe watched any trials on TV, you may notice that there are not really <laughs> any <laughs> or many wickets <laughs> um, involved in that sport. And so I specifically sought out a breeder who off-leash hikes her dogs. All of her whippets hike off-leash consistently and they are very responsive to her when she calls mm-hmm. them. They're out in nature loose and a dog that wants to engage with me and that does care about me and it's not kind of just off in la-la land doing its own thing all the time, but a dog that's more naturally inclined to be responsive to me and want to pay attention and, um, you know, follow cues and respond Mm -hmm. to what I'm asking. And so I think, you know, there are dogs out there within breeds that are more unconventional or might be a little out there for what you want to do with them, but they might have that individual dog or that individual breeding might have the traits that make them well-suited to what you're looking for. And so I think if you're gonna stack the deck in your favor going with really any read, even a read that is conventional and that is the obvious choice for a job that we really should be looking at the genetics of that specific litter and that specific dog and, mm-hmm. you know, as much as we can and really see like, does this, does this seem like a good fit for what I'm going to be asking the dog to do? Of course, you know, we don't have like a crystal ball that we can look into and see into the future if it's all going to pan out, but we can yep. at least do what we can, you know, on the front end and try to stack the deck in our favor. Yeah, I think that the concept of stacking the deck is really probably the most important underlying thing here is just, yeah, like, you know, when I think, when I was thinking about getting another dog for this line of work, you know, I start with, okay, I know I really like Border Collies as a breed. They work very well for me. We think alike. (laughs) We get along. Um, I like their style of work. I'm used to working with one. I like how responsive they are in the field. And I know that generally they tend to be, as a breed, highly handler-focused, highly responsive to cues. Generally, the, 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 the drive that we want to work is there. So generally, it's pretty easy to motivate a Border Collie to work for toys. Um, and it's actually pretty easy to create a little bit of a an addict or a junkie um, in the Border Collie breed, which is maybe not the ethical decision that we always want to go down um, intentionally. But um, if it's created, like with my older dog, Barley, I don't think I would intentionally ever try to teach a dog to care about his reinforcers as much as he does, because I don't think it's actually good for his mental health. And I think he could work more 
he could work just as effectively without being quite as obsessed. That's a little bit of a different conversation. Um, but we know that generally border collies have um, that drive to work. And then, so then, you know, we've got the breed and then, yeah, I'm starting to look at the breeders. And one of the things that stood out to me with Niffler's um, litter that I don't think I've talked about in the past on this show is I was asking his um, breeder about herding um, instincts, trials, tests that she had done with the older, with um, both the stud and the dam. And she talked about how with the dam, she was like, yeah, I thought she was going to be an okay herding dog. And then we had a lamb that um, was injured or something like that. And it might've been a goat kid. I can't quite remember now, but she was like, so we had that, um, that lamb inside the house for a while. And Cora was trained not to herd that lamb, obviously. And now we can't get her interested to herd anything anymore. Oh, and that is something I actually really liked. Cause I was like, okay, that means that we've got a genetic package within at least the mother here that allows for relatively easily training this dog accidentally to not want to herd. Um, so that was, <laughs> that was like a tiny, really good thing. Um, and then within the, the litter, yeah, I was looking for a puppy that was interested in reinforcers, was interesting in using his nose, was interested in chasing toys that I threw. Um, and it's so hard with a little baby puppy to assess whether or not that yeah. is going to translate over into yeah. hunting. And this was another <laughs> thing that we've kind of talked about is this concept of part of the problem, I think, within the conservation dog world is if you think about selecting for a good working dog, for a good detection dog, generally speaking, we're obviously starting with a healthy dog. Then from there, you know, assuming we've got good hips, eyes, ears, all that good stuff, then we're thinking, okay, we want a dog who has the drive to work. And that generally is going to mean that dog wants to tug like a maniac, that dog wants to chase toys, or that dog is just a total chow hound. One or more of those three options. We're looking for a dog that has really big feelings and will work very hard for a reinforcer. And most reinforcers are based on the predatory sequence because that's inherently mm -hmm. reinforcing. Then we're looking for dogs that like using their nose. And the problem that we get, we run into in conservation dog work, and I imagine is probably similar for search and rescue, is then we get into this place where the very thing that makes our dogs successful as working dogs is also very closely related to being a dog that is predatory, um, because we are hijacking their predatory behaviors to, to hunt what we want them to do, and that may be... Um, <laughs> That may be truffles, that may be the poop of a cheetah, that may be an invasive plant, but the genetic package we're working with and the behavioral package that we're kind of mapping out onto is the same as what we would do with predatory mm -hmm. stuff. And if you've got a bomb dog working in a stadium, it's not a problem if what makes them a good working dog also makes them very likely to chase squirrels, but it is a problem for us. So the selection gets really tricky, and especially again, if you're looking at a puppy, you can't know. It is so hard to, I mean, it's so hard to assess puppies for anything, but um, all that much harder to really parse out whether this dog wants to play and chase toys or this dog <laughs> wants to also chase squirrels or both. Listen, you and your dog are already canine conservationists by listening to the show, so go ahead and show it off. Join the club. Check out our brand new merch store, which is located at canineconservationists.org shop. It's stocked with stickers and magnets and bags and shirts. We're adding new designs all the time. If you're an artist wanting to collaborate, just we split profits and are eager to hear from you. Reach out at canineconservationists at gmail.com. We also offer all of our webinars on demand through our store. So you can check out our puppy raising webinar, alerts and changes of behavior, introducing a target odor, as well as seeking sourcing and alerting. We're also planning to add new webinars to this all the time. So if you've got a request for a webinar or you're a practitioner hoping to contribute a webinar, again, we're going to split our profits with you and you can reach out to us at canineconservationists at gmail.com. Let's keep the learning going. 
so one of the things that is common in the dog training and behavior world is that we talk about, you know, before you get the dog, assume everything is genetic. And that's what we've been talking about up until this point. You know, we were talking about selecting a breed that sets you up for success. We're talking about selecting lines, selecting parents. We haven't actually talked about lines that much. But for example, in the Border Collie breed, I may be looking more at sport lines versus herding lines because those herding lines are much more likely to be very very attuned to groups of animals and controlling movement and those sorts of things and the sport lines are more likely to be a little bit more just kind of handler focused and interested in toys um you know stacking the deck with the lines, stacking the deck with the individual parents stacking the deck genetically with the right puppy as much as we possibly can then once we've got the puppy home now what we do and again it's this ism in the dog behavior world that now that you've got the puppy, you've got to assume everything is behavioral. Everything is trainable. Everything is something that you could fix because otherwise just blaming it all on genetics, um, that doesn't help. We can't change our genetics. So what do you do with your really young dogs or what have you done with your really young dogs to um, stack the environment and their learning histories up for success? Yeah, I think that's such a good point. So, I'm just going to assume that my puppies have high prey drive. <laughs> I'm not going to really wait to see strong evidence mm -hmm. of the high prey drive because I'm just going to assume it's there. And so right from the get-go, I make an effort to get them around animals that we may see in environments we are likely to spend time in. Mm -hmm. So that means specifically for me, horses, because we do encounter horses pretty yeah. frequently when we're out hiking off leash and I do not want my dogs pursuing horses. And so, um, you know, just finding local farms that I can hang out at in my area and um, expose my puppy to horses. First, make sure that they're not freaked out by them. And then, you know, work on some engagement around the horse, work on voluntary offered attention around horses. Um, I'll do the same thing around other livestock. Uh, I'm very lucky to have some great farms that are open to the public in my, in mm -hmm. my area. And so spent a lot of time there with my puppies and young dogs. Um, I will also start working around squirrels and critters and birds and deer because where I live, we are extremely likely to encounter those when we're out in nature. And so even, um, something as simple as there's a squirrel on the deck and my puppy notices it through the glass door. Well, there's a, a great training opportunity, mm -hmm. right? There's a great moment that I can teach my puppy something um, that is going to work towards a goal of off-leash reliability in the presence of wildlife when we're outside. And, you know, it's things like taking my puppies to trails where we see lots of deer, <laughs> where they can see deer from a distance. And then we can work on some super fun pattern games where they learn how to turn away from deer and pay attention to me and give me eye contact and move with me and heal with me. And, you know, it's all super fun and, you know, it's nothing too serious or intense, but just from the get go showing them wildlife exists, right. Mm -hmm. I'm not just going to like, hope we never see it because that's unrealistic. Um, but then showing them, look, you can pay attention to me in the presence of these really fascinating animals that I know your genetics uh, predispose you to pursuing, but um, trying to kind of get ahead and be a little bit preemptive about it um, as opposed to waiting until, you know, they're four or five months old where you might start seeing more of those instincts come in in a stronger yeah. way. Um, even with my puppy clients, you know, this is stuff that I'll work on, especially if they have a breed that tends to be chasey or, um, you know, have, have higher prey drive where they'll say like, oh, he's fine. You know, like a squirrel will run by and he doesn't care. And it's like, okay, that's great. But you know, it's a nine week old yeah, puppy. He's a baby. <laughs> when it's, when it's, when it starts to hit, you know, like four five, six months, then 
it's going to be ripping your arm off to try to get to the squirrel. Mm-hmm. So let's get ahead of the problem and just introduce some fun, you know, attention games or pattern games. I love Leslie McDevitt's pattern yeah. games, um, which I find would be incredibly useful and very versatile. You know, if you're on the road or on a trail or at a farm or wherever you're at, you can adapt those really easily to whatever environment you're in. So just trying to get ahead of the problem and explain to my puppies that you can pay attention to me. You can turn away from an early age. So that way it's kind of a foundation skill in the presence of wildlife. Yeah. And I love, you know, the very first thing you said of let's just assume this is going to be a problem and start dealing with it. Because if we wait until we see it, um, we're already kind of behind the curve and, yeah, this is something that I wish I had done a little bit more of with baby Niffler um, because he is highly, highly responsive to me. Just yesterday, I was able to call him off of a jackrabbit that flushed from not too far away from us. Um, and he kind of took off for a couple steps. And it was funny, you, you could even see actually before I called him, he got like three or four strides in and he was going quickly at this point. It wasn't that he was just taking a couple steps towards it. He looked over at me as he's kind of mid stride. <laughs> and I was like, yep, yeah, you're right, buddy. I'm about to call you. And I called him and he came over. Um, and we were able to then kind of do some pattern games to calm him back down and get to the search, um, which isn't mm-hmm. ideal. Um, you know, it would have been nice if he had not taken off at all. But also, I don't necessarily expect if he practically steps on a jackrabbit. And it takes off. Um, <laughs> yeah. I'm not surprised he went after it. Um, and I'm very happy that he was able to recall away from it and get back to work very, very quickly. Um, but I wish that m- maybe if I had done a little bit more work with him when he was even younger, um, we might have a little bit more success with it. Um, particularly kind of with those like sudden fast retreating things um, are that's kind of the one area that is still really challenging for him. Uh, and honestly, it's, it is for Barley as well. Barley is a little bit less um, visually and chase oriented than Niffler. Um, he's, he's honestly, he's so ball and Frisbee motivated that it can kind of override it in a way that it doesn't for Niffler. So maybe I'm eating my words a little bit here as far as the level of obsession Barley has within his reinforcers does actually help here because when he has to make the choice between the ball and a jackrabbit, he is very likely to make the choice of ball versus for Niffler, it very much so is a training thing, not just that A is better than B. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. And I think it goes back to the idea that you shared earlier about how traits that you're looking for in a detection dog kind of line up with like the predatory sequence yeah. in some ways. And um and so and I think that that's kind of an interesting illustration, just how you were sharing like the difference of between your dogs. And even though my dogs aren't doing conservation work, I kind of see your point in my own dogs because Lazlo just has a lot more drive. Like he just, he cares a lot more about work mm-hmm. and not that Ruby doesn't care about me. She does have a lot of handler focus, but Laszlo is just super jazzed for everything and like just wants to go and go and go and work and work and work. And so he will like his recall or his offered attention or his voluntary disengagement from a running bunny is just a lot like jazzier and peppier and like more intense than Ruby's. Mm, mm-hmm. And so even though I would say his prey drive is is even higher than Ruby's, his responsiveness to me is also just like more intense. Yeah. That makes that, sense. No, that's a really interesting because, point. I like that a lot. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. So it's like, it's like how much he cares about wildlife somehow correlates with how much he cares about responding to mm-hmm. me. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that makes sense though. Cause if you, if you think about 
you know, part of the problem with a lot of these breeds with intact predatory sequences is that not not problem, I guess, but like problem for this particular context is that it often does kind of correlate with independence. And in these breeds like the herding breeds where we have the predatory sequence um, and we have more intensive handler focus, it's just easier to manage. Um, and I was one of the other things that we can throw into the pot as well as sensitivity. So Niffler is a very soft dog. Um, not, I would say he's unusually soft as a border collie. Um, and maybe for anyone who's listening who isn't kind of enmeshed in the dog world, by soft I kind of mean he's a dog who, if I say uh uh, he will flatten his ears, apologize, and never do it again. <laughs> Um, I am able to, like, if Barley is playing fetch and Niffler tries to steal the ball out of Barley's mouth, when Niffler is 50 feet away from me, I can say, "Uh uh-uh, and he will stop mugging Barley, you know, and it's not because he's got a history of punishment. It's not that I've taught that as a warning for an e-caller or something. That is just how, um, sensitive and responsive he has always been. Um, which is, again, relatively typical for Border Collies, and Barley, on the other hand, is pretty hard-headed for a border collie he is much more likely to like i can full-on yell at him which is not something i tried to do but you know we're all human (laughs) um and he may kind of show some appeasement behaviors but he is very likely to then go back to the drawing board and try again um those uh Mm -hmm. corrections or me losing my temper don't tend to have a long-term impact on his uh behavior and do not tend to stress him out much, which is, again, that's a factor. That's actually something that makes him a great conservation dog because he is super persistent and he will work really hard mm. and he doesn't mind if he steps on a thorn and then has to go back to work. Like, that doesn't bother him. And Niffler has some of that tenacity, but I would not say he's as tenacious as Barley. However, mm-hmm. with the wildlife, that sensitivity for Niffler works really well because if I, you know, if I have to do the Niffler, you know, sort of yell, <laughs> that works incredibly well for him, even when he is kind of like mentally gone. Um, and it does not work as well for Barley. For Barley, I really have to rely on the reinforcers more than his sensitivity. So like, and it's interesting because I think these impact our training plans and how we work with each dog. So do you see kind of similar where you have to approach your dogs kind of differently based on how sensitive they are or how uh, you already talked about Laszlo being more handler focused and that potentially making his recall snappier? Yeah. Um, Ruby, my Ridgeback is is a very sensitive dog. Mm -hmm. Um, And I mean, similar to you, I, I don't really yell at my dogs, you know, <laughs> as like a, a method of training them. Um, you know, we're all human and sometimes it, it might happen in a particularly stressful situation. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas Laszlo is very resilient and less affected. I mean, if I just sigh a little too loud or long, Ruby will like come over and put her head in my lap. Like, (laughs) okay, did I do something? And same, it's not like, you know, we have a history of punishing her or anything. Um, Whereas Lazlo's just kind of like unbothered and like on to the next thing. Um, But I do think... um, It's interesting that... The, 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 uh, just sorry to interrupt, but like, uh, you know, this is an N of two, I guess, but we have kind of the same, the same patterns where Barley is the more engaged and less sensitive one and Niffler is the more, in more sensitive, but also cares a little bit less about his reinforcers. Oh, wait, no, do our dogs map the same way? Cause then you said Ruby is a little bit less worried about her reinforcers but yeah more sensitive so it's interesting that at least in these this case those things seem to correlate yeah and i think they each kind of pose their own challenges and opportunities you know Mm -hmm. so um Laszlo has higher prey drive and so that opens up a door for me to use certain reinforcers that Ruby might just not find quite as cool as he does. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so putting a piece of really delicious food in like a bunny hide toy that I drag on a rope after I recall him and I run away from him and he gets to chase the bunny fur with food in it is like the coolest thing ever for him. Yeah. Whereas Ruby doesn't really like toys. She definitely has high prey drive and, you know, will pursue wildlife. Um, I can also recall her off things, but she just doesn't find like chasing a toy as interesting as he does. Like for her, yeah. it, it just doesn't compute and it, it doesn't relate. Um, whereas for Laszlo, he finds chasing a toy with food in it really, really awesome. And so that gives me a really powerful reinforcement that I can use if I do call him off something. Um, yeah. And, you know, in an instance of him chasing wildlife, for example. Um, and so I think with each dog, as I said, there's kind of challenges, but then also opportunities and yeah. trying to be creative, like within the instincts and behavioral repertoire that each dog has, like thinking, how can we leverage this to reinforce the behaviors I want to see, even in situations that might be challenging for the dog to respond. Yeah. And I love, yeah, I love this discussion of how based on the the specific topography of what your dog finds reinforcing, what your dog finds mm-hmm. motivating, um, and the the way that predation um, kind of appears for your dog, we're able to take these different approaches. So like for Niffler, for yeah. example, actually after I recalled him away from the jackrabbit, I threw his toy, his ball, um, which is his reinforcer for all of our work in the field, and he rejected it. He came back and he stood next to me and he had his pupils dilated and he wanted to stand next to me and continue kind of watching the rabbit repeat uh, retreat into the distance and refused any of the reinforcers I offered him. I had um, hot dogs with me. I didn't have anything better than that. And I had to toy. Um, and normally chasing a toy um, is really important to him and something he cares a lot about. And one of the things I've actually struggled with him, this is a side note, but in the heat, you know, for example, yesterday's high was 108 degrees. Um, it is hard to motivate him with toys if he doesn't get to really chase them. Um, so we switch over to food and I am working on making tug a game that is really, really important to him, which is something I just hadn't done with him. And it's coming along, like it's been like three days of playing tug with him and he's already like, choosing tug as often as he's choosing fetch as his chosen reward, which is great. Um, But anyway, so it was really interesting to me to watch like, okay, he recalled to me away from a jackrabbit. He was less than 10 meters behind this rabbit. It was really, really close. And then he rejected his reinforcers. He kind of did this for a different reason versus for Barley when his arousal spikes, his toy drive spikes at the same time. Mm -hmm. So generally, if I recall Barley away from wildlife, what I'm going to do is as he's running back to me, I'm already pulling out the toy, I'm presenting it, and I'm bracing myself for the tug hit that is about to come and potentially (laughs) almost knock me off my feet. Um, And it's just, it's so interesting how different it is and how both work. Um, Mm -hmm. But... Yeah. Yeah. So go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say for my Ridgeback Ruby, who's the more sensitive dog, um, I find that adding like a lot of praise, you know, if I recall her, um, I'm going to give her some really high value food, but I'm also going to praise her a lot in a super happy voice and, you know, be super obnoxious about it. And she loves that. And I think that fits with her tendencies to be more sensitive, um, you know, like to my voice or just Mm -hmm. how I'm doing that day, you know, or it could be unrelated to her. Maybe I'm just having a bad day and it kind of affects her. Right. And so me being happy and giving her tons of praise, um, along with some great food for recalling off something, um, tends to be very motivating and reinforcing for her. And so again, just kind of working with their quirks, and seeing it as an opportunity for reinforcement and getting specific with reinforcement mm-hmm. that works for that dog. Yeah. 
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So I want to talk about, you know, some of the measures that you take to prevent wildlife chasing before it even starts. Because again, as we kind of said, it's it's very impressive that I was able to call Niffler off of this jackrabbit, but in an ideal world, he never took off after it. Um, that may be too much to ask. And obviously, he, if he moved close enough to the rabbit to flush it anyway, that rabbit was going was going to flush um, and uh, was clearly disturbed by our presence, whether or not he had chased it. But again, in an ideal world, we're not chasing wildlife at all. Um, and that's something we really move, are working on. Um, so what are some of the approaches you take beyond kind of puppyhood? You've mentioned pattern games. Are there any specific that um, you want to bring up or specific kind of procedures you use to help the dogs understand when uh, or not to chase at all, like not to start? Yeah. So I like, maybe we'll start like really big picture and then we'll go back to like yeah. nitty gritty, like the pad, like specific games or that sort of thing. So, um, the first thing that I try to do is choose environments where the chasing is less likely. So, uh -huh. um, where I live, it's a lot of forest. And then there are also kind of like some more open prairie type areas, and so I like to stick with the more open areas because it's less likely that we're going to find squirrels um, and deer that mm -hmm. they tend to live in the forest. And um, I want my dogs when we're off leash to either be just kind of being dogs, like sniffing and rolling and chasing each other and you know, just like decompressing and having a good time mm -hmm. um, or, you know, checking in with me, which gives me an opportunity to reward them for voluntarily coming over to me. And so if we're in a forest where it's a windy trail and I can't really see what's ahead and, you know, there's like squirrels every 30 feet and then we come across deer if that's our experience of being off leash in nature, then my dogs pretty quickly are going to get in a zone where they forget I exist. <laughs> they're really far ahead of me. Mm -hmm. You know, they're responding to every sound thinking that it's going to be like their next possible kill, you know, like <laughs> every little like blowing leaf and, um, that's not setting us up for success at all. <laughs> yeah. That's like the opposite of what I want to be seeing from them. And there's nothing wrong with any of those behaviors. Like if I could have a hundred fenced acres, you know, and just let them rip, then that would be, you know, fine with me, but that's not the reality. I, I don't have a hundred fenced acres, um, sadly. And so I have to kind of work with the spaces that I have. Yeah. So I, I like to try to be strategic about where I'm letting them off leash in the first place so that I'm shaping behaviors I want to see, which is staying relatively close, checking in, keeping me on their radar, re being responsive to me when I ask them to do something. Um, and I think it's also really important to do this really frequently because yeah. if you don't do it often, then it becomes a novelty. And even if I am taking them to places where it's unlikely that we'll actually encounter wildlife, they're probably still going to be, you know, ranging really far, um, <laughs> looking for critters that they can mm -hmm. chase. They're going to be less likely to, to actually even be able to respond to me because they're going to be maybe overstimulated so or aroused or, um, you know, whatever they might be feeling where they can't listen to me. And then we get into that danger zone where they're blowing off recalls. They're just not even checking in anymore. Um, mm -hmm. And so we want to make this a really regular practice so that it's just normal. They're like, yeah, I'm off leash all the time this is not a big deal. I don't need to try to like take advantage of the opportunity because we're going to do this again tomorrow. Yeah. Um, I love so that point. And like, I just as like an example, I'm doing something similar with Niffler um, right now where Barley naturally stays very close to me on hikes. Um, 
And Niffler does not. Niffler is a rangy, rangy guy. When I put the GPS collar on him, if I am in a place where it is safe and I do let him kind of let him rip, um, he's often hundreds of yards uh, or hundreds of meters away from me. Um, And he's moving in circles. He knows where we are, but he is far away and um, often moving at like 20 miles an hour. Like he's just, he's nuts. Um, <laughs> uh, and the, the the place that I'm staying this summer for like my field housing is it's these little hunting cabins on 85 acres in Nebraska. And it's largely forested. Um, but we have this field that probably takes 10 or 15 minutes to kind of walk the perimeter of. And we've been doing that almost every day. And with Niffler, I've been working really, really hard on like, we're not treating this as a decompression walk right now. We are treating this as a training scenario to work on closing that radius that he is in mm. by quite a bit. And like the second he kind of is about to go out of sight into the woods as we're kind of walking on the edge of the field, I'm recalling him, rewarding him and releasing him back. Um, and yeah. even over the course of like the last couple of weeks, what I started with is I was actually, if you can kind of imagine this is as, as, as a circle with the edges being the forest and the inside of the circle being the field. I was walking a really small concentric circle in the field at first. So we were really far away from the temptation of going into the trees. And then over the last week or two, we've been getting to the point where we're able to walk a bigger and bigger loop because we're walking closer and closer to the forest edge. And he is more and more successful at staying close to me and not going off and engaging in any of these um, other hunty behaviors that you know, while he's not actually chasing wildlife, if he is to encounter deer when I cannot see him and he's 150 meters away from me, I'm not going to be able to recall him. So it doesn't matter how good his recall is if he's that far away. So um, yeah, what are some of the other things you do to kind of make sure that you're able to stay on your dog's radar? Yeah. So I love just the very simple act of changing direction. (laughs) Um, So because I reward my dog so much just for checking in with me and, you know, coming over all on their own and then they get a little snack and then I'll release them back to the environment. When I change direction, they're very inclined to follow me and like, hey, where are you going? What's going on? Where are you, where, why are you going over there? Um, and I might just turn right back and go the direction that I was walking previously. Um, I might do this at a walk. I might be really like sneaky about it and kind of like let them see me like start tiptoeing. And then I might like sprint and hide behind a tree where they have to come catch me. Um, I might just take off running as fast as I can in the opposite direction, which again, kind of taps into the chasey prey drive instincts that they have where it's super fun to chase me down. And then they get a delicious piece of food when they catch me. Mm-hmm. Um, but just kind of keeping them on their toes. And this is stuff I do with my clients all the time too, with little baby puppies. It's super fun, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, come chase mom or dad. And then you have a little party when they find you. Um, well, and I really love, love the idea. Sorry. I love the idea of kind of using changing direction and novelty to get them to pay attention to you on their own rather than waiting for a recall. Like I know one of the things I do a lot of is I'll do a similar thing where I'll change direction without calling them. And I'm keeping an eye on them to make sure that I'm not totally abandoning them or going to lose them. But using that as a little bit of a learning experience so that when they have that, oh crap, I lost her moment. That is a little bit of a learning experience to maybe stay closer and stay more engaged in the future. Yeah. So I think, yeah, it can kind of prompt them to check in more because they don't know when you might turn around and walk the other way silently. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You're, yeah. They got to keep track of you because you're not trustworthy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I also really love, um, I, I'm pretty sure this game came from Absolute Dogs. They have a lot of fun games. I can't remember what they call this game, but basically like finding maybe a big tree or a bench or a big bush or something and kind of running around it. So you kind of take off the tree or the 
trash can or whatever it is like between you and the dog and then you do the whole like thing like oh which way am I yeah, like faking them out and like yeah yeah and that's super fun and again it taps into like the chasey prey drive stuff where right they get to run and chase and pursue you um and then they get a big reward when they catch you so i love doing that one too um this other little game i got from sarah strumming one of her courses which is um also super fun is um i think she calls it i'm not a regular mom i'm a cool mom which is a <laughs> mean girls quote um but um like f- pointing out cool stuff to them or creating something yeah. cool to show them so like Maybe I find like a feather. My dogs really like feathers, like a bird feather that I found on the ground mm-hmm. and they passed it by and I found it. And so I'll be like, oh, you guys come look at this. Like, come look at this thing over here and point it out to them. And, um, or I might, you know, take some really good food and put it on a rock or a log and then call them over and point it out to them. And then they get to discover like this amazing snack that mom somehow knew about that I didn't realize was there. And so the kind of the point of this is like, you know, stuff that they don't, right. And like, yeah. you can show them cool stuff or make cool stuff happen. Um, Cause you're like kind of in the know and they're not. And so you know, it's a good idea to pay attention to mom or like come see what what she might be pointing out. And so it may not be necessarily like a recall or a check-in, but it's still related to those behaviors because they're coming over to you. And you're also kind of explaining to them that like you're a person worth listening to and worth trusting because you kind of make cool stuff happen. Yeah, no, I love that. And I was kind of trying to think, because uh, some of these things, like we do a lot when we're out on hikes, um, like my dogs and I, and then don't necessarily we get to be things that we do when we're on the in the field and doing a search. Mm-hmm. But I think they still kind of transfer over as concepts yeah. that help create the behavior and create the repertoire that we want. Um, because yeah. like in the field, for example, I don't want my dog so focused on me and me pointing things out that they're not able to search. But, you know, there are other ways that I can do this where I might call them over um, to a puddle or a place for them to take a nice break um, where, you know, it's something that they need to do anyway. And I will kind of call them over and use some amount of like functional reinforcement there um as a way to kind of yeah again re-engage them but i'm not necessarily like if i um if i find a bat on um on a search which has only happened a couple times where i find something that they have missed but it does occasionally happen um i will either completely ignore it um and see if the dog finds it which generally is what happens um where i just spot it 30 seconds ahead of them or something or if they if they really don't notice it i will kind of remember where it is um i might drop some flagging tape or something and then i come back to it on my own um when i'm going back to process samples anyway um without the dog knowing it because like one of the things that i'm actually really concerned about doing especially again because one of the the flip side of border collies for this line of work um and dogs that are highly engaged with their people is we don't want them to get to the point where they're so engaged with us, with us mm-hmm. that they're not able to go search independently. So I, I, I take kind of, um, I take pains to ensure that my dogs don't think that I know where the bats are, even if I have mm-hmm. located them. Um, because I don't want them to think that um, they can rely on me to find stuff because they can't, that is right. their job. Right. Um, Let's round out with a couple pattern games, and then we actually have to wrap up here. Um, so, you know, pattern games, and I think one yeah. thing, one last thing that we haven't mentioned that I'm just going to say really, really quickly here is also, you know, we may search with our dogs on leash. We may toggle our dogs on and off leash throughout the concept of throughout a search, throughout a hike, um, and we can work with our partners for to create study design setups that are more likely to set our dogs up for success. Um, so, and all of that ties into everything that Elise has been saying here, but to bring it home for the practitioners, um, I think we can think creatively about how to apply this when we're working with um, our project partners as well. So, okay, 
let's let's maybe do like one favorite pattern game or one favorite exercise that you have found really successful with your dogs who do really want to chase wildlife. Yes. So I enjoy kind of combining like the look at that game, which is probably one of the better known pattern games um, where the dog looks at the distraction. It could be a bunny. And then you initially just reward them for noticing the thing. So you can click or yes, and then reward them for noticing the bunny. And then fairly quickly that takes you to step two, where then the dog looks at the bunny and then looks at you. And then you can click or yes, the orientation away from the bunny and to you. Mm -hmm. Um, But for dogs that have higher prey drive, um, I find that adding some movement to that game can really help because it can be really hard for a chasey or hunty dog to be like very still during this whole process <laughs> of yeah. just kind of having to like sit there very patiently and watch the thing and not move yeah. at all. And you know, every dog's different. And for some dogs, they may do better with like a calm version of the look at that game and stillness might kind of be where it's at for that dog. But for my dogs, and I think for a lot of dogs, just adding some movement to the game. Um, so kind of combining that with Leslie's ping pong game where you're throwing food. So the dog notices the bunny and then instead of just rewarding hand to mouth, I might cue them to chase a, like a hunk of cheese that they get to go, you know, chase 20 feet and then they get to, to go eat that. Um, and then I will pay them for returning to me. And then they look at the bunny again. Then I'll chuck another big piece of food out in the grass that they get to chase down. Um, and that way they get to move and like expel some of the energy, which yeah. I think is really helpful as opposed to just sitting there and like the soda can is shaking up like right where they're about to <laughs> Yeah, yeah, they're about to blow. Beer or whatever it is. Um, and so kind of giving them an outlet to like burn off some energy. Um, but still reinforcing that orient orienting towards you um, and keeping their head on their shoulders around the wildlife. Yeah. And I love, and I think this underlines, you know, if we think about how this um, fits with our episode with Simone Mueller is, you know, she talks about the stalking game where she teaches the dogs to stand still and stalk with their eyes and to enjoy that kind of staring behavior. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, one of the things that is super cool about having all of these episodes coming out together is that, um, or at least available together, because I don't think they're coming out at the same time, uh, is underlining how different it is. Like you have sight hounds mm-hmm. that are bred to really chase, and you have found that it's super helpful to ensure that they get to move um, as part of avoiding chasing. And I, you know, when I was talking about Niffler with this jackrabbit the other day, he actually would rather stand there and stare at the rabbit as it retreated Mm -hmm. than engage with the reinforcers I had. And then it was kind of my job to get his head back on his shoulders after he was done. And we did some pattern games for that. So we did kind of some left-right treat games um, where it's just kind of a treat on the left, a treat on the right, a treat on the left, a treat on the right, until Mm -hmm. he was at the point where he was eating normally for him. And kind of getting that arousal back down. And then I was able to confidently cue him to search again. And um, yeah, I think the bottom line here is that we can get creative and it's never going to be a one-size-fits-all. And maybe figuring out what part, you know, what matters to your dog and how can we offer that to them in a context that is safe for them, safe for wildlife, ethical for wildlife, Um you know, I think we've given people a lot of really good ideas in these episodes, but, you know, uh, we have not given a training plan for a reason because it's just not possible. Yeah, I think we've come full circle with the very first thing we talked about, about just different breeds and functions of different breeds and thinking yeah. about that when we go about training and training plans. So. Yeah, yeah, it's super. And and, and even knowing your individual dog, because I honestly would have really expected Niffler to want to chase a Frisbee Mm -hmm. as a consolation prize for not chasing a rabbit. Um, And was very surprised that that was his response the other day. 
So, <laughs> you know, be, uh, be able to think on your feet, I guess, is one of our last thoughts. So, Alisa, <laughs> where can people find you online if they're interested in learning more um, and uh, following you and your beautiful dogs online? Yeah, I'm on Instagram. My handle is alisa.digs.dogs. And my business has a website, dogforwardtraining.com. And then there's a corresponding Facebook page for my business as well. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for coming on. And um, yeah, I hope this is really helpful for people, especially people who whose dogs do struggle um, with being off leash around wildlife and they're really trying to figure out how to make this work better. Um, you know, whether you're a practitioner or just a pet owner, sport enthusiast. Um, and yeah, for everyone who's listening, I hope that this episode inspired you to go outside and be a canine conservationist in whatever way suits your passions and your skill set. As always, you can find show notes, transcripts, merch, uh, stickers, join our Patreon book club and all of that great stuff over at canineconservationists.org. We'll be back next week. Bye.